I'd ask that the rest of you join me in Hebrews chapter 7 as we study God's Word together. We're studying through the book of Hebrews as a church and we find ourselves in chapter 7. We're doing a chapter at a, at a time, just kind of getting the bigger picture of things. As you're finding Hebrews 7, I've got to prepare you for today. I've got to get you ready. I'm going to try to scare you. Use scare tactics ahead of time. When you travel to another country or you enter into another culture, it's difficult to communicate, right? It takes some adjusting. It takes some work. It's difficult to understand things. And if you don't put forth effort, uh, it, it's not enjoyable at all. But if you put forth even small amounts of effort, if you just try to understand and you try to work hard at being deliberate how you're communicating, just a little bit of effort goes a long way. And before you know it, if you just work at it and work at it, before you know it, you seem to enjoy yourself even in another culture, even in another country, just sort of how it works. Well, I'd like to remind you this morning that reading the Bible is similar. If you don't realize that you're entering into another culture that's going to involve some work and some effort that can lead to some enjoyment, um, you're in for a rude awakening. And really, this is how it works when you enter into the church culture. We have certain words that we use, vocabulary, culture, understanding, lots of gaps to be bridged. And I mention it this morning, I could mention it every Sunday, but I mention it this morning in a general sense just because I think sometimes pastors don't do a very good service to the church or to people when they say, anyone can understand the Bible, it's easy, all this is so simple, um, when the reality is, a lot of things in the Bible are very simple, but a lot of things in the Bible aren't very simple, and we're bridging a cultural gap, we're bridging a language gap, we're bridging a time gap. But I promise you this, with a little bit of effort, sometimes more than other times, the payoff is worth it, because things make more sense, and things start clicking, and you learn a little bit more, and a little bit more, and all of a sudden you're excited about learning, and light bulbs go off. Well, I mention it this morning in general, but I mention it this morning because Hebrews chapter 7 uh, involves uh, some culture shock, in a sense, some culture adjustment. In Hebrews chapter 7, we're not only going to have to go back a couple thousand years to bridge a gap there like we would normally do in a New Testament book, but in Hebrews 7, the writer to the Hebrews quotes and references King David in Psalm 110. So now we have to go clear back and do another culture. And not only that, the writer to Hebrews also references Genesis 14. And so now we have to go back not just a couple thousand years, but thousands and thousands and thousands of years. It's going to take some work. I would be lying to you if I said to you, Hebrews 7 is really easy. You know, just kind of kick back and, uh, you know, disengage your mind and enjoy church today. We're going to have church. Uh, it's just not how it is. But I will also promise you that the payoff is worth it. Because what will happen is you will see Jesus as better than you imagined. Now, you might be thinking, I think Jesus is pretty good as it is. Great. If you think Jesus is pretty good as it is, understatement, 
Hebrews 7, with some effort, is going to help you understand that he's even better than you are currently thinking he is. That's a pretty big promise, but I think I can make it, and I can make it with some integrity. Now, in Hebrews 7, we find it coming to us in a greater context. It's talking about the high priesthood of Jesus, which is what chapter 5 was about. It's what chapter 6 is uh, at least mentioning. And then chapter 7 is about, really, it's all about how Jesus is the great high priest. Chapter 6 was an interruption because uh, at the end of chapter 5, he wants to talk about this guy named Melchizedek. But he says in verse 11, about this we have much to say. Uh, That is in reference to Melchizedek, this great high priest, and how Jesus has similarities. But he says in verse 11, and it is hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. He's, he's rebuking them. And, and I don't want to get lost this early in things, or to you to get lost, but just to help you understand how Hebrews works. 5, 6, and 7, high priesthood of Jesus, how he's the greatest and ultimate, sufficient high priest. But chapter 6, last week, took us on a little bit of a diversion because it was a call to grow up. It was a call to grow up spiritually, and now he's back dealing with this primary issue of how Jesus is the ultimate, sufficient, great high priest. Okay, I told you it was going to be a hard morning. Um, the payoff is worth it. Now, when we get to chapter 7, chapter 7 divides into a couple of sections. And if there's anything easy about Hebrews 7, it's how easily it divides. Okay, the first 10 verses deal with one argument. And the remaining verses, verses 11 to 28, deal with another argument. Both of these arguments, and I'll mention them specifically in a second, are designed to help you to see that Jesus is the all in all. He is all you need. He is sufficient as high priest. Therefore, trust him and don't trust in anything or anyone else. The first argument is about the superiority of this guy named Melchizedek and how he is superior over every other kind of Old Testament priest, specifically how he is superior over the Levitical priests. Okay, keep tracking with me. Melchizedek is greater than those Old Testament priests, those Levitical priests. That's the first part of Hebrews 7. And then building upon that argument, there's an argument that tells us, therefore, Jesus, who is like Melchizedek, or Melchizedek, who is like Jesus, is greater and superior and above all of those Old Testament priests. Okay, and you say, that sounds like a lot of work mentally. You've already told me more theology and more Bible than most sermons contain. So, shall we close the service in prayer? (laughs) I don't think we're going to. But I really do want you to get it, and I want you to understand. Yes, we're going to learn about first century Jewish culture. Yes, we're going to do some time travel. But in the end, I hope you see that Jesus Christ is better than you even realized he was based upon the biblical, legitimate argumentation. Now, maybe one, uh, one more thing to say about the division uh, the first 10 verses, he's going to be referencing Genesis 14. Okay? He's drawing upon the Old Testament. The remaining verses, he's drawing upon the Old Testament in Psalm 110. So the first part of the argument is from Genesis 14. second part of the argument is from Psalm 110. Now I have a question for you since we're talking about priests. What's a priest do anyway? 
Some of you are giving me good answers. Some of you are sleeping. Um, what's a priest do? A priest represents, right? Some of you said that. A priest represents the people. We learned about this even in chapter 2 and in chapter 5 we learned about it as well. A priest represents the people so that he can atone for their sins, pay for their sins, make sacrifices for their sins. And we're even going to learn they would make sacrifice for their own sins. That's what a priest does, okay? And what we're learning in Hebrews is Jesus is the only priest you need. You don't need some other kind of priest. But imagine first century culture, especially Jewish culture, if you're a Jewish man, Jewish woman, and, and you've made a profession of faith in Jesus as your priest, but life is getting harder and harder, and there's more social pressure, and there's more family pressure, and you're missing your old traditions, and perhaps you've been listening to Jewish radio and apologists on Jewish radio for Judaism, I don't know. And you're starting to wonder. You're starting to hear some objections to Jesus' legitimacy. And so you schedule an appointment to go talk to your priest. And you say, you know, I'm having a hard time here. I'm kind of on the fence now. I, I, I wanted to believe in Jesus as my high priest. And, and now I'm not so sure. And I listen to Rabbi so-and-so and Rabbi so-and-so. And my mom tells me this. And my grandpa tells me this. And I need you to answer some questions for me. Should I trust in Jesus as my high priest? It makes a lot of sense, but I've got some unanswered questions. And the priest pats you on the head. Oh, I've talked to a lot of people like you before. No, I, this could go on all day, and I'm, I'm going to stop. But the point is, the priest could say, Oh, you, you mean the Jesus born in <clears throat> Bethlehem? Oh, you mean the Jesus who grew up in Nazareth? The place where nothing good comes from? Oh, here's the, the deal breaker. You mean... Jesus, the priest, who's not qualified to be a priest? Because he doesn't have the right family line? Oh, that priest. Enough said. And then you're on your way home, and you run into the author of the book of Hebrews. And he is so glad that that priest brought up that objection. Because that priest who said, oh, Jesus, who's not even qualified to be a priest because of his family lineage. Oh, thank you for teeing up the ball for me. Because I'm going to use that argument against Jesus to show you the legitimacy and supremacy of Jesus and hit the ball out of the park. That's what happens in Hebrews. Are we ever going to get to it? I don't know if we are or not. I actually have more to say. But for the sake of time, I think I'm going to say, let's jump right into it and let's learn more about how Jesus is superior. But the first part doesn't really deal with Jesus. It deals with this guy named Melchizedek. Okay, so let's jump in. Melchizedek is over the Levitical priests. Let's jump in and learn some things about this, drawing from Genesis 14, beginning in verse 1. For this Melchizedek, and the verse before connects Jesus to this Melchizedek. Jesus is of that priestly order. King of Salem, perhaps Jerusalem, Jerusalem, <clears throat> priest of the Most High God, even based upon Genesis 14, he's a monotheist, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. 
Jesus is similar in certain ways to Melchizedek. And what happens according to Genesis 14? Uh, this king of Salem, who is also a priest, so he's a king priest, a priest of the Most High God, he met Abraham returning from slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And we're not going to take the time to do it, but if you go to Genesis and read Genesis 14, which I would commend to you, you, you see that it's, it seems like a, a pretty normal kind of thing that would go on. There, there are going to be these local kings of these local townships and these small areas, and they would have battles and skirmishes that would go on. And if you win the battle, you take the other people's stuff. That's pretty normal. It's kind of interesting. Uh, Don Carson, who I probably respect more than any New Testament scholar who's alive, um, suggests that we not think in terms of king like, you know, um, grandiose uh, king of England kind of thing. Uh, given the fact that it's a pretty small region and you've got many kings, uh, he, he put the image in my mind that it's like a small town mayor. Uh, it's a little bit more small townish. It's not how we would normally think, perhaps, of the grandiose nature of things. But it's interesting. Read Genesis 14 uh, later. But he's referencing Genesis 14 regarding what went on with this um, squirmish and battle. Then verse 2, and to him, Abraham. Remember, who's Abraham? No big deal in the Old Testament. Father Abraham, right? He's a huge deal. And to him, Abraham. Abraham to Melchizedek, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. You already see where he's going. This is a real big deal for Abraham. The credibility of Abraham acknowledging the legitimacy of this king priest named Melchizedek. That gives a stamp of approval and authority on him. Let's keep reading. It says, he, referring to Melchizedek, is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. And the author could go lots of places with those things, because those things could sound pretty messianic, uh, but he doesn't do that. He doesn't chase down the righteousness, he doesn't chase down um, the, the peace uh, theme. Uh, instead, he focuses really on this one main idea, and the one main idea is... You've got this king priest named Melchizedek and you've got Abraham who we all trust if we're Jews and he honors him with a tenth, with a tithe, acknowledging the legitimacy of his priesthood. It's the main idea. That's what's going on here. I know we're doing a lot of work to get ourselves to where we want to go to get to Jesus, but this is crucial that we see it at this point. But oddly enough, verse 3 says, he is without father or mother or genealogy. And the main idea would be the genealogy part. He's without father or mother or genealogy. See, why does he say that? Well, if you're anyone who's anyone in the Old Testament in Genesis has a genealogy, Read Genesis chapter 10. Here we have somebody who doesn't have a genealogy. There's, there's no reference in Genesis 14 of his birth, and there's no reference to his death. He stands out as unique. This is what has led some to say that he's a, he, he's a pre-incarnate Christ. And maybe so, in-house debate. The only challenge with that ends up being he's going to be like the Son. 
He's not the son. He's like the son. The other challenge is he's king of Salem, a real place where, where he, he has his roots. He, he, he rules and reigns. So I personally don't think it's a pre-incarnate Christ. It could be. Again, wouldn't want to die on that hill. The point here is he's unique. He, he doesn't seem to have legitimacy in that no genealogy. But even though he doesn't seem to have legitimacy, no genealogy, what happens? The legitimate father, Abraham, acknowledges his legitimacy by paying him tithes, acknowledging his legitimacy as a priest. Then verse 3 says, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. Again, I think accenting lack of genealogy. Based upon the narrative, based upon the uh, Genesis narrative, we don't know when he was born. We don't know w- when his life ends. Now, again, you could argue that just shows he's eternal. Um, I personally don't take that view. And he says, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. There's a similarity between these two. In a greater sense, Jesus is a priest forever in that he really is eternal. He's the greater. But there's a similarity. We don't know beginning, we don't know end. Oh, by the way, we do know beginning with and end with Jesus because there is no beginning. Uh, Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2, he's the eternal creator God. And not only that, he, we're going to learn, is in heaven now living to make intercession for us. That would make him more the ultimate Melchizedek, if you will. But what's interesting, he doesn't say it that way. I really do want you to notice the end of verse 3 and make sure you get your money's worth. Resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Now that's not the natural way to write this. What should it be? It should be talking about the Son resembling Melchizedek. He says it the other way to make the point. You would think Jesus, a mere man, resembles this guy from way back in Genesis, Melchizedek. He says it the other way because he's already told us about Jesus, the eternal son. Chapter 1, verse 2. And you know what? It's Melchizedek who resembles the son. Hmm. Profound point made subtly. And I love the fact that he makes the point subtly. My mind goes to John 8, verse 58, when Jesus says, Before Abraham was born, I am. Priority isn't given to Melchizedek so that Jesus can resemble him. It's flipped. Now verse 4 says, See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. This is, this is deafening regarding his greatness. And he doesn't even have a genealogy. Now progressing the argument, verse 5 says, And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promise. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. Who's the inferior? 
Abraham the patriarch. There's someone greater than Abraham. And now he's going to go down the road and he's not only greater than Abraham, he's greater than the Old Testament Levitical priests. I told you it was going to require some work, but those of you who are putting forth a little bit of effort are able to see that Jesus is even better than you thought he was. Melchizedek was not a Levitical priest because there was no Levitical law given yet under Moses. But it doesn't make him any less credible. Verse 8 says, In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men. And what's true of mortal men? They have this problem. They die. And he's going to pick up on that later. But in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. A challenging interpretation or a challenging verse to interpret because how do we know that Melchizedek lives based upon the Genesis account? What we know based upon the Genesis account is we don't have a country of origin. I mean, we, we, we don't have a, uh, anything about his birth. And we don't have anything about his death. We just have him there. And it would seem that that's on purpose to make a point about the one who is greater named Jesus who really is eternal. But the point being here is based upon the narrative that's written down, the testimony that's written down, he has no beginning, he has no ending. That's why uh, writers have said things like this. This may be in one of your study Bibles. Melchizedek's priesthood is perpetual since the record about his priesthood does not record his death. Others would say, in this literary sense, he is declared to be living. But what is true of Melchizedek in this limited and literary sense is true in an absolute sense of Christ who serves his people as high priest in God's presence. Quoting John MacArthur, study Bible that some of you carry, and quoting uh, Peter O'Brien. By the way, last night I thought to myself, I need to check the MacArthur study Bible because I know a lot of people at Omaha Bible Church carry it, and I don't know what his view is on Melchizedek. And uh, I was so happy to be able to go to sleep last night knowing that John was right. Um, <laughs> I just thought to myself, oh no, I'm going to be up all night trying to sort out, you know. But, uh, and I purposely try not to read what he says ahead of time because I respect him a lot and I don't want to just be uh, biased in that way. But the idea would be just dealing with the literature alone, the testimony. And by the way, the Greek word that's used there in Hebrews... Um, for testimony is always the testimony of the Scripture. So insofar as the Scripture narrative, narrative goes, there's not a beginning and there's not an end. The point is, again, showing Melchizedek is superior to even those Old Testament priests. Let's keep moving. Verse 9. One might even say... Let's just carry this out logically, he says, for, for the case of argument. One might even say that Levi himself the esteemed priest who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Okay, let your brain capture that, right? You could even, in a sense, say, even Levi acknowledged the greatness of Melchizedek because... 
Abraham did, and Abraham is his father. Now, so far, here's what's happened. You with me? He's sleeping. Apart from one reference to the son, he's pretty much left Jesus out of it. It's as if he couldn't help himself in verse 3 just to say something. But basically, and I do want you to catch this, basically the author of Hebrews has just dealt with Genesis 14. He's not taken some fancy Christological hermeneutical interpretation and put a spin on it. He's not artificially gone and extracted all of this New Testament Christology kind of stuff and taken it back and taken it like a syringe and injected it back into the Old Testament. You know, abracadabra, sleight of hand. We made the Jewish scriptures Christian now. He didn't do that. He dealt with Genesis 14 at face value. And if you deal with Genesis 14 at face value, you have to conclude, you should conclude, there is a priest greater than the Levitical priest who even our great father Abraham acknowledged as such. This is important as you're dealing with an original Jewish audience who's struggling with whether or not Jesus can be a legitimate priest. Because apart from the Levitical priesthood, we're sunk and we don't have any atonement. Oh, contraire, mon frere. That's what he's done. So this step isn't a big one, but the next step is a biggie. Because now we're going to leave Genesis 14 and we're going to go to the other Old Testament text where Melchizedek is referenced, Psalm 110. You don't need to turn there because our passage is quoting Psalm 110 and just surrounded by and infiltrated with Psalm 110. Let's move on. Argument for the superiority of Jesus based upon the superiority of Melchizedek. And this is fabulous what happens here. Because this is all from the mouth of David now. Verse 11 says, Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, including the law that would require the Levitical priest, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? And you probably don't realize. You pr- I probably do realize because I've been reading this for a while. You probably don't realize what a big deal that is that he just asked that question. He's asking that question and it's fueled by Psalm 110 where you have King David looking forward to a greater king priest who is like that guy we learn about in Genesis 14, like Melchizedek. And if there is a need for a greater priest, a priest king like Melchizedek, who is different from the Levitical priesthood, that tells you something about the Levitical priesthood. It's not adequate. There's built-in fault by divine design. 
how the payoff is good. Keep thinking. Keep your mind engaged. Verse 12, for when there is a change in the priesthood, and we've been seeing something about that with Jesus and anticipated by David, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. It's because the two are inseparable. The two are, two are linked together. 13, for the one of whom these things are spoken, and we're seeing it in Hebrews as the Lord Jesus, belonged to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. And putting your finger there for a second, but that doesn't disqualify him because in, as a matter of fact, he's not disqualified under the law because now we're talking about something different. And so we can have a different kind of priest. Let's keep going in verse 14. For it is evident that our Lord, our Lord Jesus, was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, like the Levitical kind, but by the power of an indestructible life. How about that? It's based upon who he is. It's based upon his personhood which makes him like Melchizedek, but in a much more uh, significant sense, which is why Melchizedek is actually like him, because he's like him, but in a lesser sense, if that makes sense. (laughs) Verse 17, For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus doesn't have to fit that mold. And we've already established that greater than Levitical priests would be Melchizedek, and now we have Jesus in the line of Melchizedek, or in similarity to Melchizedek. And he's the one with the indestructible life. He's the one who's not going to die. He's the one who can always live to make intercession for us. And that's where he's going with his argument. Let's keep going in verse 18. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. Ooh, what a a statement that is. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Better, law made nothing perfect. The Jewish objection is going to be, what? This in no way, shape, or form fits with anything we know to be scriptural. And the author of Hebrews can say, you want to bet? Haven't you listened to David? Your great esteemed king? He himself is anticipating this. It's built in. Now, again, this is complicated, I know. And you might be saying to yourself, I'm just so glad I don't have to understand how this all works with Judaism because I just want to be a Christian and be saved and trust in Jesus. And I can't wait till we move on to a a Gentile book in the Bible. Could we do Mark next, please, Pastor? (laughs) But the hard work 
even if you're not a Jew dealing with this particular issue, will help you understand, acclimate to the culture, and it will help you to see Jesus as even more significant than you did before. Let's keep going. Verse 20, And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn, this is Psalm 110, the Lord has sworn, this is God's decree under oath, and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. Jesus is better, Jesus is better, Jesus is better. Because we have God declaring, promising, taking a divine oath. We learned about that earlier in our studies. And he will be a priest and he will be a priest forever. He's just quoting Psalm 110. Psalm 110 verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You were a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is masterful what the author is doing. And we don't appreciate it unless we do a little bit of Culture bridging. Okay, think about me. Think about me. Think about me for a minute. (laughs) Think with me about this for a moment. Think about the grand drama of redemption and how progressive revelation works. Okay, God orchestrating all of this. Think about the argument of the author of Hebrews. You go back to Genesis 14. And you've got this Melchizedek. We don't know anything about his parents. We don't know anything about his death. Extraordinary. Abraham acknowledged his greatness. Abraham acknowledged his legitimacy as a priest. Even though he wasn't a priest under the Mosaic law. Okay? And therefore all other Levitical priests actually are lesser than him. Because they're in Abraham, if you will. He dealt with that. Now we move forward to Psalm 110, David. And and you want to deal with Jewish objections? Start with Abraham, then go to David. Okay? The two big guns. Paul does this in Romans chapter 4. You want to understand justification by faith and faith alone? Deal with Abraham, then deal with David. So we dealt with Genesis and Abraham, and now we come to David in Psalm 110. And David in Psalm 110 is reflecting upon Genesis chapter 14, acknowledging his own inadequacies as a king. Acknowledging his own inferiority as a king. Looking forward to to a day when one who would come who is like that one back in Genesis chapter 14. Like Melchizedek. Who would be a king and a priest. And now, you see, we're not doing strange Bible interpretation with some sort of unethical Christian spin. When we get to Hebrews and we see Jesus is that one. This is where it's been heading all along. This is built into Genesis chapter 14. This is even why our author of Hebrews is saying Melchizedek is like the son, not otherwise. 
It's fascinating, but it's more than fascinating. It helps us to see something a little bit better of how the Bible fits together and how our New Testament doesn't just quote these things willy-nilly to just make some sort of point, sort of like hijacking the Old Testament. This is where it was designed to be going all along. This is by divine design. And and fascinatingly enough, again, you have the eternal son who exists way back here before Genesis. This is why you have Melchizedek being like him. This is why you have Melchizedek then being, giving us this hint and then this fulfillment. I'm fascinated by it. Don't claim to have it all figured out, but fascinated by it. It's no wonder that Psalm 110 is the most, one of the most, maybe it's tied for, for head, neck and neck, but, but the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. It's quoted all over the book of Hebrews. It's no wonder Christians like Psalm 110 because David gives credibility to Christ. Not that he would have to have David's approval, but it fits seeing it's all part of the divine drama of redemption. Then verse 22 says, this makes Jesus the guarantor. I think the old English word is the the surety. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. And he's going to talk about new covenant stuff later. But we have Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant covenant the superiority of jesus there's that word that i told you was so popular in the book of hebrews better jesus is better even the old testament is helping us to see legitimately so jesus is better not in war with the old testament but that's where the old testament is directing us i love it Verse 23, the former priests were many in number. Oh, I have to interject just for a second. Can't help myself. The former priests were many in number. Remember that Jewish girl or boy who went to go have the meeting with the priest? Maybe that was one of the arguments. We can't be certain, but maybe that was an argument or one of those arguments they heard from a Jewish apologist on Jewish radio. We have so many priests. Don't limit yourself just to one. It doesn't seem to qualify anyway. Oh, we have so many. And you can go to this one. If you don't like this one, you can go to this one. We have many. We can meet your needs. I love it. Thank you for bringing that up, says the author to Hebrews. <laughs> there, he says, were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. How about that? Yeah, there are many priests. There's a problem with that. The reason there needs to be a lot of priests is because they keep dying. And if they keep dying, it shows there's something faulty in the system to begin with. They can't keep uh, representing. There's something faulty there. Verse 24, but he holds, talking about Jesus now, he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, verse 25, he is able to save to the uttermost it's awesome there makes you want to become pentecostal right he is able to save to the uttermost and remember he's already used this word perfect or perfection in chapter 7 verse 11 and verse uh, 18 as well no doubt he means the same kind of idea he will save to the uttermost perfectly completely there's absolute atonement never to have atonement happen again there's absolute 
perfect salvation. There's perfect reconciliation. Never to have to be reconciled again ongoingly, inadequately. No, it is that He continues forever. He is able to save to the uttermost. And you can't get any more saved than being saved to the uttermost. Trump that, Jack, right? That He's sufficient. He's everything. You don't need anything more. He saves to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him. That's priest talk. That's mediator talk. Through Him. Since He always... You can't do this if you die, but He's alive. Since He always lives to make intercession, again, priest talk, mediator talk, for them. Never to die. And before we read the last three verses, which will just serve as our conclusion, for starters, just two comments. One would be, lots of work to understand how Judaism works for a bunch of Gentiles. But now you can read those last three verses that lots of Gentiles like a lot, like me. And you can understand their gravity and their significance better. You can see that Jesus is even better than you thought if you've been paying attention. And maybe just one other comment that I'll take to heart myself and I'm just sharing it with you. This business of all these priests, and we need a lot of priests because the priests die, and you've got to replace them or you can't have intercession. You can't have mediatorship. But Jesus, who always lives to make intercession because He saves to the uttermost, as a practical tool, will cause me to pay closer attention when priests die. In our world, our non-Jewish world. Just as a little reminder about the supremacy of Jesus. This could be true with Roman Catholic priests. This could be true with Episcopal priests. This could be true with Hindu priests. Or any other kind of priest. They keep dying. A Roman Catholic priest died in our country this weekend. I'm now going to take special note... of the funerals of priests and allow them to remind me of the sufficiency of Jesus Christ who always lives to make intercession so that He might save us to the uttermost. Every time a priest dies, it is a reminder of the inadequacy of the whole system that was meant to be shut down with the work of Christ, making it all, quite frankly, priestcraft. It's going to remind me of that. I wanted to remind you of that. That it ought, that number one, it doesn't work. And number two, it ought not be done. Because we have a high priest whose name is Jesus who always lives to make intercession. Therefore, any and all and every system of priesthood on planet earth should not exist. And let the death and funeral, as sad as those might be because we would grieve people that we might love, remind us all 
of the Jesus who always lives, who lived, died, rose again, ascended, and is alive at the right hand of the Father, living to make intercession on behalf of everyone who draws near to God through Him. And that makes me fully committed to being Pentecostal. And I say, Amen, brother, preach it to myself. And that's weird. (laughs) Come on already. Think about this. And I realize, and I, with the best of them, want to be politically correct and and culturally uh, sensitive in the pluralistic uh, world that we live in. But if Jesus always lives to make intercession for us, and he saves to the uttermost, if you believe that to be true, which is Christianity 101, which is why it's being argued in the book of Hebrews, then any and all others who die, which will include now the whole lot, are unnecessary, illegitimate, and quite frankly, assaults on the one true high priest who has said, it is finished. And yet he lives. So at the risk of being politically incorrect, I want to be a legitimate Christian worshiper. And I want you to be too. To love people so much that you'd be willing to say it with love and compassion, not arrogance and pride. And to point them to the one who always lives to make intercession for those who draw near to God through Him. You see? Last three verses are deluxe and matchless. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priest, but the word of the oath, the Psalm 110 Melchizedek, the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Father, thank you for The fact that in the Son, who has been made perfect forever, having accomplished His work on our behalf, we have the hope of perfect atonement, perfect redemption. We are grateful for this gift of Hebrews 7. We are grateful more so for the one of whom it testifies. We are grateful for the Lord Jesus Christ. May we find ourselves grateful for his benefits, but most importantly, may we find ourselves grateful for him and greatly unto him. Thank you that our righteousness, that our righteousness is not here. It is not in our trying harder to be good and our trying harder to atone for bad. Thank you, Lord, that our righteousness is seated in heaven right now because Christ Jesus is our righteousness and therefore we 
know that our reconciliation has taken place based upon him. And we are grateful. May we leave rejoicing. May we leave motivated. May we leave thankful. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.